Welcome back, everyone, to the Curious Catholic Podcast here. We're continuing our Dante series. We can't say our Lenten Dante series anymore um, because uh, we're not in Lent. We're not even Easter anymore, Paul. We've, um, we've just been relishing in the joy of paradise for so long that we have to get back to earthly matters here. Um, so our second installment in paradise uh, to be followed by our, our final and third. Um, and so we're, we're on... The uh, we're on the sun, but we'll get to that. All right. Um, so I'm joined again by Paul Camacho. Uh, our, we're, we're in tandem here, uh, traversing through Dante's Paradise, which is uh, both uh, overwhelming in a, in a good way and joyful. And um, you know what, Paul? Uh, I read your your semi. Can we call it a semi weekly newsletter? Uh, Week weekly ish. Weekly-ish, I like that better. Yes, um, uh-huh. <laughs> which I, which I love, and um, it's got a couple different key features, and I just wanted to encourage others to check it out. And um, so, I don't know if you could just say a quick word about uh, your weekly-ish newsletter. Will this be on the exam, and and what people could expect from it? And there'll be a link in the show notes as well. But. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here again, talking with you about Dante. And um, I'm, we're kind of approaching the end. So I'm, I'm actually I'm feeling a little sad about it um, coming to an end. But as soon as you finish reading the Divine Comedy, the only reasonable thing to do is start again at the beginning, uh, because then you're ready to really see what's going on. So we'll have to um, do that. The, the newsletter, as you mentioned, it's called Will This Be on the Exam? Um, and uh, it's, I, I describe it as a newsletter for those who wonder, um, the, the title is a little bit, um, tongue in cheek, uh, a lot of bit tongue in cheek, I suppose. Um, the point of the newsletter is, um, that I have students who take a class with me or with other teachers here in the humanities at Villanova, and they just, they just fall in love with learning and they want to know, um, what they can do to, um, continue to learn in a way that isn't just for a credential or for a degree, but instead about um, uh, really expanding what it means to be a human being, um, to think with wonder about the world, um, and to try to recapture and hold on to some of that wonder and attention and patience that lies at the heart of true learning. So what I do is every week or just about every week I write um uh, I'm trying to try to keep it brief, like 500, 800 words on some um, idea or thought or um, philosophical points, and then I um, that's, that's a little mini essay. Um, but it's not stuffy or academic. It's meant to be fun and engaging and, and readable. And then I oft- I have a, a section on recommended reading, which is often a, a poem or a passage from a text that I find really great. And then. Um, there's a section called cultural events, which is um, just a uh, often lighthearted um, find of a podcast or a video or um, a book that uh, is fun and interesting and engaging. And um, so that just goes out every week and it's free to sign up for. And um, yeah, the website is on the and you can just um, go there and sign up for free and you'll get the newsletter in your inbox every Monday. So 
um, or just about every Monday, yeah. Monday-ish it goes out. So um, I'd love it if you signed up. Absolutely. Yeah. Highly recommend it reading. Um, so I'll look forward to the next one. But uh, today we're with, um, as we said, we're in paradise. Cantos uh, 11, 12, and 14, which I love them. Um, and so 11 and, and 12 we're going to encounter. It's this fantastic interplay. Um, so we're on the sun. And so there's th- this theme of luminosity and, and light and flame and at one point, um, I think this comes in 14, Dante compares the soul speaking to a coal spurting out fire. So it makes me think <laughs> of, of grilling, <laughs> where I, I encounter most of my coals in the spring and summer and fall, but um, actually year-round griller. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, Grilling is one thing. I think we're supposed to also think, of course, of the prophet and of Nathan in particular with the coal, the firebrand in his mouth, right? Um Although yes. grill, grilling, I guess, is My on the brain. Uh, <laughs> but the but the sun is a place of luminosity and wisdom. It's the it's the sphere of the great teachers of the church uh, or doctors of the church, as well as the classical, uh, or or rather, um, the it's the church fathers that have lived since Christ, but also the Old Testament figures of of wisdom, prophecy, um, etc. Yeah. Wonderful. And we encounter in 11, though we don't know it at first uh, when he speaks, because the blessed right now aren't, as we found many of the souls in Dante's afterlife narrative, they're not sort of in humanoid form, which I guess we'll talk more about that in 14, kind of basically what's been going on this whole time. How is Dante even encountering the souls in human form? But now they're they're far more, and to use your word, um, luminous, sort of mm-hmm. almost like orb-like, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sort of incandescent flame. So I guess we'll, we could talk more about that in, in 14, but we find out that we're hearing from Thomas Aquinas, the angelic right. doctor. And <clears throat> it's this really cool dynamic where in 11, Thomas is going to sing the praises of St. Francis. And in 12, inspired by Thomas's generosity and charity and eloquence, St. Bonaventure is going to sing the praises of Dominic. Uh, those two great uh, 13th century mendicant uh, fa- founders of, of the of the great mendicant orders of the Franciscans and the Dominicans, um, but I am uh, Francis- Franciscan 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 by <laughs> persuasion, um, uh-huh. and uh, actually I don't know if I've told you this I may have but I did a little time in formation after college uh, with oh, the Capuchin no, Franciscans so. Uh, well, and you know, that's, it's so fascinating you say that because I, um, my father, um, almost became a, uh, Franciscan, um, in which case there, there, at least our, um, partnership would not have existed here on this <laughs> podcast, but, and for my confirmation name, I took the name of Francis of Assisi. Oh, nice. So, um, uh, I share your love of Francis, although my academic training is very much in the Thomistic um, vain before I became a, an Augustine scholar, I was very much a Thomist. I sometimes describe myself as a recovering Thomist, um, which I mean with all um, love and uh, de- truly devotion to Thomas. Um, right. But but Matt, are you familiar? The, the, Dante is doing something here really interesting, right? So Thomas is a Dominican who's singing the praises of Francis, the founder of the Franciscan order. And Bonaventure, who, who will appear in Canto 12, is singing the praises and telling the life of Dominic, the founder, of course, of the Dominicans. 
but there's a so Dante this is a a brilliant dramatic kind of stroke of genius by Dante but there's a he's basing this actually on a historical fact um that in the in the middle ages and and ever since actually this was a practice that on the feast day um of each of the respective founders the other order would deliver a speech honoring the founder of the other order um this is made all the more poignant when you realize that in the time that dante was writing the divine comedy the, the franciscan order and the dominican order they were going at each other in theological circles i mean they were um it, it got so bad that the, the pope had to write a papal bull that forbid them to debate certain topics um because the debates were so heated and uncharitable, in fact. And so here in Paradise, you have, of course, the kind of restoring of fraternity and, and charity and humility um, with these, you know, the these kind of bright lights of the of the order singing the praise of the founders of the other order in a in a great display of charity and courtesy. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. The ones that we're looking at today, the contests we're looking at, um you know, 11, 12, 14, 14 is going to bring up body soul stuff, which was one of the, you know, a locus point of that Franciscan Dominican animosity (laughs) and acrimony eventually. Although early on, it wasn't as, um, as heated, but Mm -hmm. uh, we could talk more about that. But so with Francis, we have here Thomas singing his praises and, you know, it's interesting. He likens each, of the founders to one of the choirs of angels. Um, so, Dante um, does. Yeah. Oh, Dante, right. not Thomas. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So, and this, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Actually, um, you're right. Thomas does this actually. Um, though, though maybe we can just step back one, sure. just a few verses because the, this, this canto begins um, with the few, the, the following lines. This is Dante directing the reader. Uh, um, addressing the reader directly. And Dante says, Oh, foolish cares of mortals, how flawed are all the arguments that make you flap your wings in downward flight. And then he lists, he says, all of the different things that we might pursue in our knowledge. One pursues mm-hmm. the law, one the Hippocratic aphorisms that Hippocrates, of course, is, is the founder of, the, of medicine, while yet another sought the priesthood and another ruled by force or fraud. One was set on plunder, one on the public wheel, one wearied himself in the toils of flesh and its delights. Another gave himself to idleness. So these are sort of the, um, um, the kind of professions that we might follow. But Dante is sort of suggesting in, in naming, some of them are good, of course, so like, like law or, or medicine or priesthood, right, of course. But um, all of them are kind of the active life. And Dante has in mind here, I think, the wearisome pursuit of, um, you know, applying our knowledge to the kind of never-ending problems of temporality. And then he has this great line. He says, I, set free from all these things, was high in heaven with Beatrice, thus gloriously received I mean, I know, Matt, we were talking just before we got on. You're you're wrapping up your semester. I'm a week now into the end of my semester. If my voice sounds much calmer and <laughs> more joyful, this is why. And um, it's just this really interesting little, little moment in Paradise where Dante sort of says, um, 
you know, like one of the joys of heaven will be a release from the kind of concerns and cares of organizing and overseeing and pursuing all of the kind of temporal needs of, of society. And instead we can sort of just trust in our, the courtesy and friendship that, that would naturally exist in a kind of rightly ordered society of friends and God. Um, and I just, I just really love um, that that precedes this kind of um, it, it, it's appropriate for the kind of theoretical or higher knowledge of the sun, mm-hmm. but it also is appropriate because um, the souls here extend them each other, the kind of courtesy that means something like law or of course, medicine doesn't need or force rule by force isn't necessary at all here. Here, the rule is um, that of charity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is. A, it is a striking introduction to the canto because it's uh, still in paradise. Dante is uh, letting us hear it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how we should be living, which is great. Um, and so when when Thomas is is praising uh, the two founders, right? Uh, Francis is likened to the seraphs and uh, Dominic to the cherubs. Um, so Francis is often referred to as the seraphic father. Um, mm-hmm. you know, especially because of his, during the reception of the stigmata, right? Christ appears to him in the form of a, of a six wing seraph, uh, which is obviously so important to Bonaventure, but, uh, not just devotionally, but theologically. And then, you know, it's interesting. Dante gives us a really good, you know, is a certain kind of overview of the life of Francis, particularly in relationship with his lady poverty. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, at first, Thomas is describing Francis and Dominic as basically uh, accompanying, maybe also marrying Christ's bride, the church, which is in such That's need. Right. I mean, in all mm-hmm. ages. I mean, every time I hear about the church's difficulties in the present or in the past, I'm like, they're very similar and <laughs> just in their, you know, they're obviously unique in their own ways, but the church is no stranger to troubles. Um, and so these two great founders uh, guided her through. Uh, great turmoil, even though their their followers have maybe uh, fallen away from their ideals. But but then it's it's also interesting because Dante makes a shift from the focus on the church explicitly to uh, another one of Christ's brides, namely Lady Poverty. And it's a bit mm-hmm. ambiguous at first, but later on he does make it clear, which at that time would have been something theologically striking because there is a big controversy at that time. Does Jesus did Jesus and the apostles own poverty? This matters for their mendicant way of life, but. I think for us, in in the spirit of our reading, it does give us a sign of or an understanding of Jesus as as Francis saw him as the poor Christ, mm-hmm. um, and so I do think of the San Damiano crucifix, which is so beloved. But it's really striking. It's Christ poor and naked and crucified, but it's almost Byzantine in its iconographic depiction. Right? It's not this sort of Renaissance style realism, and he and he is wearing. Um, the look of glory and victory. And so it's this, this, this mixture, uh, not this mixture, this juxtaposition of Christ crucified and glorified um, that we see in Francis, right? He is the, uh, the Pavarello, the little poor one, but he's mm-hmm. also, you know, God's poet um, uh, walking, you know, <laughs> traipsing through the fields of Umbria, uh, singing the praises of the creator, though and and the glories of creation uh, are on his tongue, but he himself <laughs> would have drawn our scorn, uh, which is very Christ-like in, in a certain way. So um, mm-hmm. 
I'm just mm-hmm. kind of I'm rambling. Um, on no, no, it's, but... this is, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and your love for Francis um, clearly comes through. I think. Um, uh, what can we say that like is Fran- Francis and Dominic too, but Francis especially, you know, he, upon his death, the kind of the kind of life of Francis, the Vita Franceschi, would would for in Dante's, you know, would, would have been. Um, it kind of sprung up right away and there are many kind of versions and Dante is innovative here in wedding him to lady poverty, obviously in a figurative way. It's all the more interesting to you, uh, Matt, that it is Thomas who uses this kind of elaborate um, metaphor or figure um, of lady poverty and mm-hmm. in kind of singing the praises of Francis because uh, Dante is in almost every respect following Aquinas's theology and um, metaphysics, and in, in in I've heard it said I, I've probably said in the podcast before that Dante is like Thomas in verse, mm-hmm. but Thomas following Aristotle thought very how do we put it. He was not the biggest fan of poetry. <laughs> he thought that figurative language and poetry, it certainly wasn't apt to express theological truths. Theology was its own discipline with its own rigor and um, form, but also that that um, poetry was sort of inherently um, deceptive and a kind of lesser, a lesser form of art or thinking. And so what Dante does here is he, he kind of gets a gentle revenge on the uh, angelic doctor by making it so that Thomas speaks so figuratively and poetically about Francis, right? In the, in the verse, you, you, it's, a, it's a sort of inside joke, a little bit of an inside joke, but it, but um, it's a kind of gentle way that Dante is going to um, sort of take Thomas's deep kind of theological understanding and his great patience and generosity and weave it into his own poetic um, or theological kind of baptizing of poetry that constitutes the comedy as a, as a whole. So for example, it, at line 27, um, Thomas, Dante's Thomas says, here one needs to make a clear distinction that is Dante playing on the scholastic style where you're always making distinctions mm-hmm. about things, right? That's what you do as a scholastic thinker. So that's very much in the style of Thomas. But then later um, when Dante says, when Thomas says, for example, um, he says, uh, for example, um, later in his speech, um, he's speaking about the, the end of Francis's life. And he says, when he, that is God who had chosen Francis for so much good was pleased to take him to the high reward that he had won with his devoted meekness. Francis recommended his most cherished lady to his brothers as to his rightful heirs, commanding them to love her faithfully. Right. So there we get this poetic idea that Francis gives the gift, uh, almost like Christ on his cross saying, Mm-hmm. to um john you know t- this is your mother now francis is saying the same thing at his death right about poverty now you should embrace poverty as your um um uh, as one to be loved by you and so you have this kind of poetic 
turn in the middle of um, Thomas's or at the end of Thomas's speech about Francis that I find really um, it just it causes a kind of like deep uh, you know pleasure for for um, for readers of Dante who kind of marvel at what he's doing theologically with his poetry. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is striking. This is not how Thomas speaks when you're reading the Summa. So right. it's, um, it, it's, it's great. It's a great turn right there by him. And, you know, there's a lot that could be said. I, I love when he talks about Francis's first followers and we hear, um, this is verse uh, 78, um, so that the venerable Bernard was the first to shed his shoes and run, pursuing uh, such great peace and running uh, thought himself too slow, um, so I, I do like the image of the of the early follower, the f- early poor brothers, the little brothers of Francis, uh, going barefoot but running and and pursuing their bride, uh, that is poverty. And I know so much ink has been spilled over you know Franciscan poverty and what he, what it's really all about, um, and, and I, I can't do much justice to it. But I think, you know, I guess it's something of a metaphysical statement as well as anthropological regarding our, our, our posture or our standing before God. Um, and so it's right. not for its own sake and it's different than Dominican poverty, which in my impression was, was done sort of as a way of showing a sincerity of their preaching contra the Albigensians who are also trying to live simple and poor lives. But I think the Franciscan poverty is, it's really down to the core of who they know Jesus to be. Right. And um, how they want to live. Now you're poor to be rich, right? Right. Um, in, in openness to the good God's diffusive self gift of right. love, which is most typified on the cross. And then, you know, as we encounter it in the resurrection and baptism and the sacraments. So, and the Eucharist is so key for Francis because it is this sort of impoverishment of God, but only to fill us with riches. So right. that's probably the best I could say. Yeah. I mean, again, really well said. I, I, I would just say that two things come to mind. One is, you know, Francis is the altar Christus, the, the other crisis that is that right. The name for him. So the, there's a dimension of the poverty, which is the main, the main theme, right. Of, of, Thomas's life of Francis that is um, Christocentric, um, right? So the so um, it's it's again it's sort of um, if poverty was sort of widowed in the death of Christ, then Francis um, weds poverty and and embraces and embraces her as the this is a way in which he's he's like Christ. So there's there's something mysterious and part of the mission of Christ to be poor. Um, and yet as, as God, of course, Christ was not poor at all. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think there's something elemental too, in the, the celebration of the celebration of creation without the intervention or mediation of the trappings of society of, um, of riches in the, in the negative, in the worldly sense, right. Um, not in the, the positive sense of the world as something to be cherished and seen as good, but rather the world as a place of competition and strife and um, um, appetitive striving, right? And that that Francis leaves that behind in order to be 
available if we can if i can put it that way right yeah um, absolutely yeah so so yeah we have thomas's great hymn of praise and then it inspires another soul uh that of bonaventure to in a sense uh, pick up pick up the tune to sing dominic's that's right praises so what stands out to you in bonaventure in canto 12 yeah canto 12 yeah, the 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 first thing that stands out is that there it really is um, tune is the right word. Um, as soon as as soon as Thomas is finished speaking, then the the, the sun is composed of this circle of twelve um, luminous um, uh, lights of the church, lights of wisdom, and then a second um, group of twelve, a second circle of twelve um, surrounds this first. 12 and they they wheel about together and um their movement dante says um is um paralleled and he says matching motion for motion song for song and he he described like a double rainbow um an outer circle that's shining in answer to the inner circle and so there's a kind of redoubling of the blazing joy and ardor and um brilliance that happens there and then out from this second circle is Bonaventure speaks. And he says, just as Thomas says, this is at line 34, Bonaventure says, it's fitting that in naming one, we name the other. So that just as they were joined as one in combat with a single goal, their fame should sh- should shine as one. Again, I, I was reflecting before we came on about how in, in heaven – Purgatory is terraces that you're climbing around. They, they're in circles too, but the the image is mostly vertical. In in hell, it's circles, right? That circle around, um, and the it's also vertical in a in a kind of descent. But but this notion of circles repeats here in these sphere, spheres of the heavens, and you see kind of in a belated way the way in which hell is again a kind of par- parody of heaven. And one of the ways that it's a parody here, right, is that Bonaventure is able to say, when we celebrate one, we can we celebrate the other, right? And that's not to the diminishment, but rather to the enlargement of both. Whereas in hell, the entire kind of philosophy is, if another is amplified, then I'm diminished, right? And so this this there's this kind of ultimately stultifying and paralyzing song of the self that um constricts the self but seems like it's um elevating the self here it's exactly the opposite right so we have these two who are joined together and um they they represent the church the they represent christ he calls them champions again you have the language of being betrothed or wed to the church um here in dominic um so uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but I, I just really love that kind of reiteration. A couple of things stand out to me from the life of Dominic that were given by Bonaventure. Uh, the One is a little, um, a kind of note or a legend from the, the sort of hagiography of, of Dominic. And that is supposedly while he, while his mother was pregnant with him, a, um, she had a dream or a vision um, that she'd given birth to a dog that was holding a firebrand in its mouth that ran out and set the world aflame. And 
of course, the Dominicans in Latin, they are the Dominicanes, which gave itself over to a pun that that um, that means canes. A canine is a dog, right? So these are the dogs of of God um, or of the Lord, and so um, this dream, right, is sort of predicts who Dominic will be and and what he'll be called, um, right? And that in his teaching and his traveling and his fighting against heresy, he would um, set the world aflame. There's a great line uh, at 54, 55, Bonaventure says, um, he was, um, there was born the amorous lover of the Christian faith, the holy athlete, gentle to his own, and savage to his foes. It's a great image um, of Dominic as um, fighting uh, with the word in his preaching, right? Fighting against heresy. Later on, there's this idea that heresy is a great tangle of weeds and um, that the Dominicans, um, they went forth privileged to be fighting against the errors of the world, uh, uh, says Bonaventure. And they, they attack here the images of kind of like a pruning back or a gardening, but I think of taking a machete and sort of cutting through all of the tangles in the forest. Um, and the result of it is that then, as he says at line 103, there then then streams from which the Catholic garden draws its moisture so that its saplings grow with greater vigor, right? You're kind of beating back the the noxious weeds and the things that want to um, choke out the life of the church to make room for the kind of life-giving stream in the garden that is the church. And there's also a kind of gentle reminder um, of the calling of the human being, the task we were given in the Garden of Eden to till and the earth and take care of the garden. And here it's applied metaphorically to you. Um, protecting and passing on, handing on the tradition of the teaching of the church. Yeah, that's where I, I was drawn to uh, when reading the canto was that imagery of, of the weed of heresy. And mm-hmm. when you when you pull it back, you let the streams flow forth. And, you know, it, it, it is interesting um, just to think about the vigilance that's necessary to really upkeep a garden. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, and you, you think about, Maybe th- certain theological disputes and, and some parties take them ser- more seriously than others. And, you know, uh, I wonder, you know, the, the sort of the vigilance does have, I guess, a, a, um, if, if it's out of love, has this as its model, right? The, the keeping of the garden and, and, you know, not letting the weeds get any kind of real hold. And um, so I guess for me, it's just maybe a little instigation toward greater concern over. I don't know. I try. I try not to wade too much into contemporary ecclesial debates. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's twice. I don't know if that's to my credit or not. But um, I, I think it is. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I was just gonna. I, I do think the way I, I've been thinking about this lately, maybe it will appear on in um, some of my writings on the newsletter, actually. But I've been thinking lately about what a delicate and important thing tradition is. Um, We often think of tradition as something that's dead and that we have to kind of recover or that we kind of just hand down the way, you know, the teacher writes something on the board and then you copy it into your notes. But I, but actually tradition is something that has to be understood and cared for. And then um, uh, 
loved and um what you what a good teacher does a teacher like um dominic does is that 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 word ardor that comes up um uh, a number of times in the description of Dominic is he, the, a good teacher. If they're teaching something that's true and good and beautiful um, is not just communicating the content, but is also um, helping for the next generation to fall in love with this thing that is worthy. And um, that's the teachings of the church for Dominic. But ultimately of course, standing behind that is Christ himself. And that I think is what links um Francis and Dominic together. Uh, and I think, you know, that's the way in which they both are really are lovers. Um, and, you know, I, I found this to be really true. I mean, I think the tradition only survives if each generation again, sort of falls in love with what it is that lies behind it. Um, and also that's the only reason it's worth preserving, right? Um, it's worth preserving because it's good and anything that's good is worth is, 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 um, evokes love, but you have to you have to kind of fight for that in the same way you you. And it's an interesting work. It's cooperating with something that comes before. Like any gardener knows, you're doing you're you're not doing the work on your own. You're cooperating and clearing away and making room and um, letting what's there shine forth. All right. Well, I just said I don't like to wade into contemporary ecclesial disputes, but I love wading into medieval ones. Uh, <laughs> so Canto 14 isn't that it, it, it's not this disputation, but it is one where we encounter something really glorious, which is the souls of the blessed rejoicing just at the mention of the resurrection of the body. And so th this has us weighed into considerations of our embodiment and selfhood. And, you know, it brings us all the way back even to when Dante first meets Virgil, who says, uh, I'm not a man, I'm a shade, no man. And we see throughout hell and purgatory, the souls marveling at Dante's embodied self making impressions in the dirt, right? And so we have with Dante sort of this inventive aerial body. Uh, so the souls of the of the dead are able to shape sort of, you know, the, the atoms of the air so as to be visible and, and I guess corporeal in a way, but you know, that that's, I think something of a poetic in, invention, which is, and I guess, you know, and if you're going to think about it, apparitions of the saints and the dead and all of that, there's going to have to be some sort of way in which the, the living in, in, encounter them in embodied fashion. But I, I don't think we need to wade into that. Um, but I, <laughs> I was just going to say, we could really get into some interesting medieval <laughs> yeah, just debates right. about that. Um, yeah, so we don't want to do that, but maybe let's just start with the, po with the positive, right? Um, right. With the, with the glory. And so, you know, in 16 verse, this is Canto 14. I'm looking at, at verse uh, 16. Um, and uh, I think this is Beatrice speaking, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she says, and if it remains, tell him how, when all of you are visible once more, this would not prove distressing to your sight. As impelled and drawn by height and joy, dancers in a round may raise their voices, their pleasure, that is the, the blessed, um, showing in their movements. So at that eager and devout appeal, the holy circles showed new joy in wheeling as well as in their wondrous song. 
Mm. So they're um, spinning around. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just at the mention of them becoming visible once more. And then, right. you know, there's now there's going to be something of a, of a, of a discourse of, um, I, I think a main concern here is how are we going to encounter the fullness of God's glory in paradise? Uh, not just as souls, um, because that's not, that's not the human person really. Um, mm-hmm. but as in, as our embodied selves, which is true to our nature. Um, right. And therefore it's only fitting that paradise would be us, would, would, would have us as us truly embodied right. beings. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there. But um, I, th- I think it's a glorious moment where, and I guess behind all this, a little subtext is my dissatisfaction with how easily where we conceive of heaven as sort of this ethereal celestial place of disembodied ghosts sort of floating about right. and we <laughs> right. we do a disservice to ourselves and our embodiment and our fleshiness and right. i really do have a disdain for that right i mean this is it, it's an astonishing and almost i mean to the pagan world it was a it was a grubby and disgusting claim <laughs> that that god took on flesh and that our imagination for eternity would be enfleshed. Um, And yet, right. This is, this is part of what was going on in the medieval debates, despite the arguments and debates and disputations about how, how it worked out exactly. The fundamental conviction was if our bodies are not raised from the dead, then what we are in heaven is something less than human since to be human is to be embodied souls or to put it, in, in a different way, in sold bodies, right? And this led to a number of, of questions. The, the biggest one being, well, you know, when our eyes look at the sun, we're blinded in, in this life. How would we be able with our eyes to look upon the glory of God and not and not suffer instead? And this is supposed to be blessedness, the, the beatific vision. Um, and this is the question that Dante has. And just the mere asking of the question, right? These are soul, so the the resurrection of the body comes only at the end of time. So the souls that Dante is encountering here are not yet united to their bodies, and so they are in a certain sense incomplete. They're glorious, but they're still waiting for this. And so if there's like a longing that's left unanswered for these souls that are in heaven, it's only for the kind of fulfillment of their bodies. And so they answer by by dancing, by moving around, but then. This is this is one of my favorite um, uh, tercets in the entire um, Divine Comedy. Um, I'll, I'll read the three lines before it and up to the three lines after it. But he, here's what Dante says. He says, "Whoever here on earth laments that we must die to find our life above, knows not the fresh relief found there in these eternal showers." And then he says this. Um, I love this line. He says. That ever-living one and two and three who reigns forever in three and two and one, uncircumscribed and circumscribing all, was sung three times by each and every one of these spirits, and with such melody as would be fit reward for any merit. Right. So these souls, in being asked about the resurrection of the body, what do they do? They sing of the ever-living one and two and three 
who reigned forever in three and two and one, which is a, a kind of wild, like, what is Dante up to? But of course this, um, and how many times did they sing it? They sing it thrice, three times. So this is clearly a Trinitarian reference. It's a reference to God that's being sung. But um, the, the one and three and the three and one, right, is, of course, the three persons in one Godhead. But it's the two that I find really interesting, right, and really apropos. The two would be um, the person of Christ who is um, who has two natures in one person, right, both human and divine. And a reminder that Christ is, um, he ascends in his body into heaven. It's sort of all compacted into. So the love of God to take on not just to, to become human, but to take on all that it is to be human and then elevate that into the heart of um, the divine life means also that our blessedness um, has to consist in a, a bodily, not just because of our nature, but also um, it has to be bodily because the body itself has been assumed um, into the divine life, the human body, which is an astonishing claim. So Dante kind of packs all of this into the celebration that the um, that these souls sing, and, and merely in being asked this question, let alone giving giving the answer um, um, to it. Yeah, it, it, it's wonderful, and I mean, ultimately, we have to be okay with the mystery of how the body will be glorified, and you know, we can only trust to uh, Christ and Mary's experiences, and. Mm-hmm. You know, um, which is why, you know, one of the reasons the assumption, I don't know if we let it hit us as it should, because mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. make, you know, death um, something less radical than, than it is in the way of a separation of our, our um, you know, our, our components of, of the cohesive whole that is the person. Um, then we miss out on the tr- the fullness of the glory of the assumption that Mary did not suffer that corruption of the composite that that is the human person. Um, but um, I really do like Thomas in, in his anthropology. I have some issues with, but when he does talk about us as living bodies, that does a lot of work, I think, for us because you're only mm-hmm. a living body if you're ensouled. And that's right. why he can say, that's why he can say, I am, I am my body. Right. And at the same time, he would say, I am not my soul. Um, because he can only say, I am my body if, if it's the ensouled body. And therefore, I don't know, this is getting right. too dry. But <laughs> it's, I guess. No, it's, last- it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really important for, as, as always, these kind of reflections um, about, you know, what, what, eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard um that that could kind of go off in all sorts of directions they they kind of rebound back on us um time is related to eternity as an as an image of eternity and therefore like one of the crucial implications of the the doctrine of the resurrection of the body is it teaches us the value of the the um inestimable 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 eternal value right of the body and also that it 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 is somehow bound up with our glory i mean dante gives it poetic form in having we we, we get a third luminary answering his question and, and that's solomon and he he sings um a response that draws a reflects on the tradition that solomon wrote the song of songs um and and 
maybe it's worth reading that and and sort of ending our our meditation today on what he says about how the mm-hmm. how the body will be. But let me read the the lines here. This is at um thirty seven. Solomon says, "Just as long as the festival of paradise shall last, that is how long our love shall dress us in this radiance." So, so notice that the festival of paradise, right, um, is the like the the, fe- the the feast of the Song of Songs, and he says will remain this bright um, forever, for, as long as paradise will last. That's forever. Its brightness answers to our ardor, the ardor to our vision, and that is given in greater measure of grace than we deserve. So he's saying the brightness reflects how much we love. Our love reflects what it is that we see, and what we see is given to us from beyond ourselves. When we put on again our flesh, glorified and holy, then our persons will be more pleasing for being all complete. So so again, the idea here is we might imagine it liberated from our bodies, we will be more perfect. But Solomon flips it, and the, the Christian vision flips it completely and says, no, actually, when we return to our flesh, then we'll be more beautiful because we'll be more complete. We will be incomplete without our bodies. And then Solomon says, and so the light granted to us freely by the highest good shall increase the light that makes us fit to see him. Here's where we enter into some of the medieval discussions, but but the the, the scholastics talked about talked about the light of glory, which comes from scripture. But the idea was that the light of glory is a supernatural gift that God gives us that strengthens and elevates our vision beyond what it is naturally capable of. So it doesn't destroy our natural vision, right? That can't look at the sun, or um, but it perfects and elevates it and gives a super added um, gift so that we become capable of beholding what is not capable of being beheld only because this excess also grants us the power of receiving it um, as a, in, a, in all of its excess. And so Solomon ends, um, uh, this isn't the end, but for the end of, um, of this, he says, from that light, vision must increase and love increase what vision kindles and radiance increase which comes from love. So you have this tight little kind of envelope of a poetic structure, right? That moved from brightness to love to vision. And then in the middle of the vision says, God gives us this vision. And then at the end of this passage moves back outward. Now the vision is increased by the light that God gives. That vision increases our love and that love increases our radiance again, so that we become sort of beautiful because of what it is that we take in. And of course the, you know, is we haven't been able to speak about it too much, but as you move through the heavens in Paradiso, this is precisely what's happening with Beatrice and with Dante. As we move up to each level, Beatrice, her face turns towards the Empyrean. She becomes more beautiful, so much so that Dante, who's looking at Beatrice because he can't bear yet to see directly the light um, of the higher level of heaven, um, by seeing the light reflected in the beauty of Beatrice, his own vision is increased. His love for her is amplified even more. And then he himself shines with the ability to now be able to behold the souls that are on that level. And this is what happens at each level. It keeps becoming more and more um, encompassing and powerful, the vision and the beauty. Amen. Well said. And uh, it should make us all you know, hope 
hope and and uh i guess be grateful for the uh the resurrection of the body just even just not as a doctrine but as a a, a personal hope for us all and so um well next time we're we're getting to the end and it's good good that we'll be recording it cuz like dante our memories will probably fail us uh <laughs> dazzled as we will be but um yeah so next time we'll 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 you know get to the very the very heights and um you know uh complete our our journey so paul thanks again and um for everyone else until that point yeah yeah yeah, until that point uh let's continue journeying further up and further in Mm -hmm.